0: And I think one thing that many first-time founders and I share made the mistake of is you don't push yourself to make the hackiest, kind of the fastest way to prove your assumptions. That's really all that matters.
1: In this episode, I'm joined by Charlie Fung. Charlie is the co-founder of ClearBank, a company that provides non-dilutive growth capital for online businesses. ClearBank is known for its 20-minute term sheet a process in which founders complete an online application and if they meet the minimum eligibility criteria, can receive up to $10 million in funding that same day. In this conversation, Charlie and I talk through some of the metrics that ClearBank's algorithm leans on when determining whether or not to fund a business, lessons learned from building Hemingley, Charlie's first company, and the constant pursuit of adding leverage to the human experience. Hope you enjoy. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on.
0: Hey, Asher. good to be here. Thank you for having me. So
1: I wanted to kick things off with something pretty unique about your background, which is the fact that you actually used to be a pro gamer. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, probably like every kid growing up, uh, it was, uh, it was my dream to kind of play video games. I want to keep playing video games for a living. Although funny enough, it wasn't really until I got onto like a team or a tournament when kind of practice or playing it, if you will, became a uh, mandatory that it kind of took the fun out of the game uh, itself. So yeah, so had a pretty short stint in there.
1: So I'm curious, what was your, uh, what was your game of choice?
0: It was called uh, H-O-N, Heroes of New Earth. It was kind of a variant on League of Legends or Dota that's kind of more popular these days.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Toby Lukey the, uh, the founder of Shopify, once said that he believes he learned more about building businesses from playing StarCraft than from reading business books. So maybe there's something in there.
0: Yeah, I, I actually played a good amount of StarCraft as well, but was never really that good at it. Yeah, I would generally agree, I think, with, with what Toby said, at least for myself. I think you tend to draw parallels to the activities that you spend most of your time in or are closest to. In my case, it, it happened to be video games. And some of my lessons were that, you know, if, if you have an advantage, don't rush for the victory. Press your advantage and force the opponent to make mistakes. Another one was most of the the very high caliber professional gamers, they actually have a very strict cadence or as we call it, rotation. And it's very important. It's kind of similar to as a business, you would have a process uh, or processes that are in place. And it's actually what allows you to kind of be more creative and kind of go out of the norm when you need to is because you have that structure in place. So yeah, I always feel that you learn the most through experiences and especially the decisions, whether it be a company or in a game, that the higher the stakes, the more you kind of remember the mistakes and the lessons. So for me, one example that I, I tie to my business is that it's oftentimes games are lost. It's not because your opponents come after you, It's actually because of the unforced error that I would make or one would make of just kind of being bad and the opponents capitalizing on that. And I think similar to business, very few businesses actually die because of competition. I think maybe with the exception of like Netscape with Microsoft, not to say there's no competition, but it's usually because of internal politics, poor execution, a lack of focus that companies kill themselves more often than not.
1: I love that. It definitely reminds me of the the Charlie Mungerism in terms of how to live a a good life is just don't do anything really stupid. Avoid those unforced (laughs) errors. or in business that are really going to kill you. So very interesting. Yeah, totally. So switching gears here a bit. I understand that ClearBank was not actually the first company that you ever started, Charlie. Can you speak a little bit to what Hemingly was and what the insight was there that led you to launch that business?
0: Yeah, for sure. So Hemingly um, was actually kind of two companies in one. Our second iteration of that was the slightly more successful one as it was a B2B company so we never really bothered to change the name. But what it was is we were a chatbot uh, kind of assistant that sat in Slack channels, usually kind of marketing, sales, and we helped them automate kind of repetitive work. So anything from lead gen to code emails to competitive research, you name it. I think of it as kind of just an assistant in your back pocket. And what we found, even Back to my first job, kind of working in corporate a little more, was that if you examine your day, you realize that there's a substantial portion of work that is often spent on things that are fairly repetitive or fairly routine. And they're actually not core key decisions that you have to make or that are truly, I guess, scalable. So that was kind of why we decided to make something like, can we help make salespeople more efficient? Can we make marketers, you know, 20% more efficient by automating some of their day? And we made a lot of mistakes. First time founder, a lot of mistakes. I learned a whole bunch. One, one example I would give is like, I still remember my first time fundraising, did a terrible job, but we ended up talking to kind of a handful of investors. Some were, you know, you range from the not interested to the very interested were the ones that would cut you checks. But one big lesson there was that you have to create a momentum and a sense of urgency when doing these things. And if uh, you kind of just let that cool down and talk to investors once in a while, what ends up happening is that nothing ever closes. So the hard lesson there was that, you know, if it's a, it's a maybe, it means a no. Like Unless it's a hard yes, it, it's, it's a no. And also always set a kind of a closing date for if, if you ever want to do fundraising.
1: Interesting. So kind of in hindsight there, do you think you would maybe, I guess, raise money in a shorter time frame? You kind of time box your, uh, your fundraise a little bit differently?
0: Yeah, I think so. I I think similar to maybe to like job interviews, right? You don't want to send out an application every four weeks, but rather you want to get all your interviews in a span of two weeks. Then that way you could actually, you as a founder or when you're fundraising, you would actually have leverage to push back on terms and kind of dictate the pace if you create momentum that way.
1: Gotcha. So I know you mentioned the, uh, the fundraising bit, Charlie, but were there any other big learnings or takeaways for you from that experience with Hemingly?
0: Made a lot of mistakes. Another one that uh, I guess we made more than once is around pricing or around kind of the customer discovery and the, the product development side. So kind of early on in any startup's career, the main goal of the founder or the company is really to try to validate the market or try to find a solution that the market's willing to pay for. And I think one of the things that uh, we learned the hard way is that customers don't really know what they want until you put it in front of them. So kind of like talking hypotheticals or saying, hey, if this was $10, would you buy it? Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes we got a lot of false positives where people would say, "Uh, yeah, I would buy it. But then once you kind of build it and you ask them for their credit card or ask them to actually pay for it, Mm -hmm. then you actually see the real objections or excuses come up. So one lesson around pricing, I would say, is you can't ask for hypotheticals. Rather, you have to put your product in front of people and see how they behave and how they I guess, they vote with their, their wallets, if you will.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I guess kind of around this whole idea of innovating and building around your pricing. I saw this great quote from Jason Fried, the founder of Basecamp the other day, and he was essentially saying when it comes to customer research and customer surveys, all the answers are great and it's all helpful, but At the end of the day, the only answer that really matters is dollar spent because people will tell you one thing and then do another thing. But if they're not willing to pay for your product, you know, it's really besides the point. So it's interesting that that was kind of a bit of your experience and learning there. So
0: I couldn't agree more with that quote. It's a great quote.
1: So by the end of 2015, Charlie, you're winding down Hemingway and the seeds of what we now know today as ClearBank were beginning to form. Would you be able to tell our listeners the story of how ClearBank got started?
0: Yeah. So one of my co-founders, Andrew, has already been wanted the idea a little bit kind of in late 2015. And we were all repeat founders. So ClearBank is kind of, I guess, four founders by founders in a way. And we kind of all saw from different angles, like Michelle, for example, bootstrapped five companies while Andrew has done a bunch of VC rounds for previous companies. And in all the cases, I think what we realized what the insight there is, whichever way you choose to finance your business, whether it was bootstrapping or whether it's VC or, or debt, there is an implicit cost. So for example, with bootstrapping, the cost is really growth, right? You only grow your company as quickly as you have free cash flow to reinvest. And while with VC, the cost is dilution. You're giving away a piece of the future pie in order to get capital today. And then for example, debt you're borrowing against your house right now. So I think that was kind of the, the, the insight there. Building a business, is pretty hard as it is, you know, from the ideas to the MVP to the team. Like early days for us, we were all working out of the same house, living together in San Francisco. And you know, when you're building out your MVP, as much time as you can to spend focused on the customer and building out the product, the better it is for the business. And I think one thing that many first-time founders and I sure made the mistake of is you don't push yourself to make the hackiest, kind of the fastest way to prove your assumptions. And that's really all that matters. Uh, so for example, when we're testing out like our product for Uber drivers for ClearBank, at first while was kind of like, how do we reach out to these Uber drivers? One idea was like, okay, why don't we just search for Uber drivers on LinkedIn? But you know, not many people put that as their LinkedIn title. So that that ran out of the prospects pretty quickly. So we came up with the idea of like, wait, why not just order an Uber? So one of the things that we did pretty scrappy in the early days was like, we would just order Ubers, take turns, hopping on the Ubers and just pitch them ideas. The Uber discounts really helped us a lot, by the way, through that phase. Um, but I think that what we learned is that like, you know, uh, or with all startups, that a lot of the early work of folks hearing customers, developing the product, it's a lot of work. And on top of that, fundraising is just another barrier that usually takes founders outside of their job of building the product. And it's very both draining and very time consuming. I think most of all, the access to capital is not equal for people who doesn't have the pedigree maybe, or doesn't have the network, or just doesn't happen to like live in a startup hub. So Mm -hmm. I think our vision was like, imagine a world where as a business owner or as a founder, you can get access to your capital and you don't need to give away a piece of your company to do so, you don't need to put your house on the line. And as a founder, you can really focus on the business and the customers, which is to be honest, what most people start businesses, to do right um so that that's kind of our goal
1: yeah so charlie you already spoke to a few different pieces of this um but i guess for our listeners who might not be quite as familiar what is the core product that clearbank offers to founders and i guess how does that differ from what a more traditional venture capital firm can offer
0: yeah for sure so everything's pretty data-driven and that's kind of the approach we take so for your listeners out there that we invest in e-commerce businesses. And the way it works is that we use AI to assess the financial health and trajectory of prospective companies. Um, so we invest anything from kind of $10,000 to $10 million in less than 24 hours. And uh, companies kind of pay us back in a revenue share model so that there's no dilution. So an example is like, if we give a company $100,000, they would be expected to pay back, uh, let's say 6%, $106,000. And they would pay back whenever they make a dollar let's say 5% until we get back $106,000. So it never goes above $106,000. The most we'll ever get paid back is $106,000. So then to your other question in terms of how does that differ, I'd say from the traditional guest avenue, my view is that the more optionality we can give founders as an ecosystem, the better it is as a whole in the long run. It will result in more companies, more innovation. And kind of being a founder, is hard already. And uh, most people don't start their company excited about, you know, getting on the road and fundraising for six months, right? It's usually because they're passionate about a problem they're solving. And uh, usually fundraising is a means to an end. And it's also a huge time sink for like six to nine months. So I think two parts that it's important to understand about the traditional VC system. One is that it's actually not accessible to everyone. If you don't have kind of the right pedigree, the network, or just happen to kind of live far away from uh, kind of the startup ecosystem, it makes it considerably harder. It's not impossible, uh, but it just makes it harder. But then the other critical thing I think that's more important to understand is that the economics of a, kind of a traditional VC firm. The way the economics work is that they bet on a handful of companies each year and they make money or the economics only works when one of those businesses really uh, is a home run. It's in 100x uh, or an IPOs. And it's because it kind of expects the other eight companies to go to zero. But the, the problem is that there's actually a lot of businesses that don't quite fit that mold. Because unless you're trying to build the next Facebook or the next Amazon, that is actually going to be that 100x, what we found is that there's a lot of founders and just businesses that are frankly underserved or doesn't fit that traditional mode, but are really good businesses and great founders. Uh, so what we do is instead of asking them for a pitch, we take a complete data-driven approach and we uh, let the data basically speak for themselves. So we connect to the information and we assess the business metrics that way. And so far we've invested billion dollars in over 2000 companies. And I think what, as you alluded to, has amazed us is the diversity of founders. We have invested in like companies in over 50 states and kind of 8x more women than the industry as a result. So that's been a big surprise and pleasant one for us.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if for those that have read stuff by Alex Danko or maybe Ali Hamed, you see a lot of talk about how Silicon Valley and just the startup ecosystem in general is kind of bound to move in this direction of venture debt or debt financing. Just because like you mentioned, Charlie, for let's say the average e-commerce startup, they've proven their model they don't necessarily need to give away equity, this very expensive piece of their business. They really just need a little bit of financing, maybe in the form of a, a well-structured loan so that they can use this on ad spend, things that are very reliable and things that you guys can run in your algorithm and say, we're gonna give you this money, we're gonna get back. It's not kind of a, a typical VC bet saying, we know that 90% of these companies are gonna fail. We just need one to succeed. And I also definitely don't wanna understate, I guess, the success of the, the ClearBank model so far. You know, you guys have obviously funded the likes of Untucket, Lisa Sleep many more. So I know you might not be able to speak to this too, too much, Charlie, but without giving away too much of ClearBank's kind of secret sauce, what are some of the things that you look for in a business, whether that be MRR, ad spend, when thinking through whether or not it's primed for continued sustainable growth?
0: Yeah. So the funding decision is all data-driven mainly because that takes the biases out of decision-making. It it kind of prevents us from making the same human biases and mistakes of like, oh, did we like the pitch? Or, oh, the story wasn't that great. And let that get in the way. So from a numbers perspective, I think exactly as you said, one of the things that we care a lot about is the the fundamental unit economics of the business. Mm -hmm. So for every dollar you put in, how many dollars do you get out? Hopefully it's more than a dollar, right? And of course, it gets a lot more complicated as we start to kind of dig down. Like you can start to ask, well, how does the retention look like? You know, for every dollar that comes in, does it repeat? For every dollar that comes in, like, is is that the dollar that will survive when COVID hits? Or does it have enough diversification? But at its core, it's all kind of centered around the idea of for every dollar you put in, how many dollars do you get out? Mm. Uh, So we plug into data sources and measure these metrics. Some of the key ones that we look at are, it it kind of differs by business model and differs by industry and verticals. But one, for example, that's uh, centered around e-commerce would be your return on ad spend. So kind of based on For every dollar you put into Facebook or your primary source of acquisition. So usually for a lot of e-commerce companies, it's either Facebook, Google or Snapchat or Pinterest. And you're measuring how efficient is that dollar and how many customers does that dollar equate to and how many products can you sell because you put a dollar into Facebook. So that's kind of the return on ad spend that we look closely at. And then the other one, for example, for SaaS companies uh, would really be around retention. Once you capture a dollar, how long do you get the MRR to last? Do they churn after 12 months? Do they churn after three months? Does that business and retention curve and cohort look closer to that of Netflix, or does it look closer to like an enterprise SaaS like Salesforce? So as a result, we don't need to listen to 100 pitch decks. Uh, we do enjoy listening to the founder stories, though. However, it's always kind of really fascinating to hear those. But kind of just let the business uh, metrics speak for themselves. And I think as a result, we've noticed that businesses that traditionally one would probably write off or more easily, we've been fascinated by how well they've been doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that... Obviously, human beings have kind of a core tendency to be drawn to and like people that are like themselves. So, for example, in Silicon Valley, if you are from a certain background, maybe you are a certain ethnicity, it's kind of a tough bias to avoid to want to fund founders who are of the same background. But with ClearBank, you guys are obviously relying on an algorithm which has no inherent biases. You know, it's not black, white or purple. It just looks at your business. If your business is good enough, you get funding. So I know you mentioned this a bit, Charlie, but in light of COVID-19 and the recent market slowdown, many startups have shifted their focus from fundraising and maximizing revenue to more of a survival mode. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about ClearBank's newest product offering and how it helps startups stay alive longer and get through this crisis?
0: Hmm. So we launched Runway a few weeks ago. So during these distressed kind of macroeconomic times, companies' margins are often compressed. Uh, they might lose customers. It's harder to get sales. And as a result, the runway, uh, which is just a term for how many months they have until they run out of money. Uh, so that, that shrinks. And our goal around launching that product was really to hopefully help them extend their runway and kind of get through these phases. Because I think during these times, cash is really the most important part.
1: So you and Michelle and Andrew are obviously all repeat entrepreneurs, you know, you've experienced as founders, I'd be curious to hear your take on what you believe founders should be doing to navigate this uncertain time. You know, let's say I'm the founder of an e-commerce business, obviously, the macroeconomic landscape has shifted massively, what are the things that I should be looking to do right now to ensure that my
0: business is going to survive? Yeah. So we've seen actually a bunch of these great examples in our portfolio companies, Uh, like some had to pivot, some had to do a lot of cost cutting, unfortunately. But I think it goes back to that point of during these times, your liquidity or your cash becomes very important. So there's a couple of takeaways. One is that first to recognize the situation, like we are going through a recessionary time and it might not be the same amount of impact for every industry. But because it's fairly macro, it will ripple through the economy as an effect. And one saying is that generally speaking, markets kind of drop like an elevator, but they kind of come back like an escalator. So be prepared for that. And the other one is, it's probably not great to count or bank your company on the markets going back up. The market is, I think, currently recovering actually quite well, but you don't want to bank your company on whether it will recover tomorrow or not. And that's because the market can remain irrational a lot longer than your company can remain solvent. So I say phase one, when a crisis, hits. It's kind of like the, uh, we're in this now, now what? The best companies we've seen in the portfolio, the founders or the leaders are calm. They analyze the situation, they kind of align their team and they take action. So some of the questions to kind of ask is like, how much cash or runway do you have? Do you have short or long-term debt obligations? Again, it kind of centers around this liquidity question. Your future revenue, for example, will be impacted as well. So that, that impacts cash. By how much will those revenue be? impacted by? And how does that impact your your cash position? And I think now more than ever, communication kind of alignment and just making sure that the team is working together is more critical than ever. Being transparent is very important because I think during these times, everyone is a bit stressed. Everyone is a bit unsure of what the future might hold. And that doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant or easy to be transparent or communicative. But during these times, everyone has questions, but nobody really knows the answers. So I think the best thing to do as as, as a leader is really to just be open and talk it through. And I think we've seen actually companies in in our portfolio, like some used to sell socks and they pivoted to selling masks or others have rebranded in order to survive. And that's been really positive to see. And then I think the important part is actually not to forget the phase two of all these crises is kind of like the recovery and can you then kind of go on the offense, if you will. So it's important to know that like all crises, this too will pass. We can debate whether this will be like a you know U U-shape or a V-shape or a W-shape, but that doesn't really matter. The reality is that this too shall pass. So what's important is to focus also on that if you're an e-commerce business, not to miss the upswing and to also understand when you might need to actually accelerate. I think a good example of this was actually Groupon back in the 2008 crisis where uh, they really did a great job of kind of taking advantage of the situation where coming out of it, everyone wanted to save and everyone wanted to focus on how can I get cheaper goods? And they, they really did a good job of capitalizing on that.
1: I really like that. I guess that mindset of this is our new reality. How are we best going to capitalize and make the most of it? You mentioned Groupon there, but I definitely think there are different ways that startups can think through instead of just saying, okay, this is a disaster and panicking, really taking a clear head to the situation and thinking through this is our new reality. Let's make the most of it and come out the gates really, really hot once the market does come back to normal, whether or not that soon or in 18 months or what have you. So yeah. I think that's great, yeah. Charlie. I
0: think so, it's also important to note, like you said, it's probably going to be like 18 months. I think the, uh, I was reading the study, like the average recession lasts uh, 11 months and the last mm-hmm. recession was 18 months. So it's also good to put the, the perspective of what time might look like.
1: Absolutely. And so one of the questions that Ethan and I like to ask all our guests on the show, Charlie, what are some of your favorite books and podcasts and how have they changed the way that you view the world?
0: I've actually been uh, reading a lot of blogs as of late, probably more than books. Anyone that's interested in startups, I'd heavily recommend Paul Graham. I think he has some great pieces on that. Uh, A book that I I really come across and and liked is one by Scott Adams, How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. So Scott Adams is the, the founder of Dilber. He talks about how he's not that great of an artist. He's not that great of a comedian. He's also kind of had an average career in tech and corporate, but he's figured out a way to kind of combine it all to create something truly unique. And that resonated with me, at least very very well, because uh, kind of early on in my career and even nowadays have a similar feel to to that, that imposter syndrome where it's like, I know some business and finance and I studied it was by no means kind of top of my class. I know, you know, math, stats, but peers of mine that are quants that are much better than me, I didn't know how to coach. A little bit, but never got a job as a developer. But kind of figuring out like what works for yourself and molding your job or whatever you're working on to to solve for uh, those problems uniquely. Steve Jobs had this quote: "Everything around us that we call life was made up by people that were no smarter than you and I, um, and we too can kind of change it and influence it." And I'd say it made me realize that what we call career paths and what I at least thought early on in my career is that if you wanted to get to point B, there's kind of a series of steps. It's like a career path or ladder that you got to go through. And that's really just kind of footsteps that someone else carved out probably 10, 20 years ago. And A, it's not actually that long ago. And B, they're no smarter than you and I. So why can't we kind of build our own kind of path? Uh, So that's kind of a a book that I've really enjoyed.
1: Nice. So kind of in that vein of Scott Adams thinking through this basket of skills that went into him making Dilbert and having this very successful career. Let's look at you and say, let's fast forward 50 years from now. So you're 77 years old. Uh, you're <laughs> yeah. looking back in your life. What do you hope to have accomplished at that point and how do you want to have spent
0: your time? I'll be seventy seven. Can't even imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been fascinated with automation, specifically around how to add leverage to us as human beings. In my first job, for example, it wasn't really part of my job description, but I spent a lot of time writing scripts, things to automate what was hours of spreadsheet work into kind of a click of a button. And that's always fascinated me. And I think it's not just leverage in the traditional financial sense, but also kind of like what's the leverage on our time or our energy and brainpower. Actually, Asher, have you heard of the Steve Jobs example of the bicycle and the condor?
1: I actually have not. What What is that?
0: yeah so there was a study by scientific america that was comparing animals and their efficiency around locomotion so basically how efficient is an animal moving one kilometer so they had all the different animals you had I think, mice was not very efficient salmons were actually quite efficient the most efficient were actually condors and humans were kind of rather unimpressive somewhere in the 60th percentile but one of the key insights that they had was that they gave the humans a bicycle and um, then measured it and it turns out the human with a bicycle kind of blew the condor away by a large margin. Mm-hmm. And to me, a bicycle is essentially a tool that acted as leverage on our, our physicality. And I think what we've seen a lot of innovation in the past years that also acted as leverage in similar ways, like Steve Jobs with the, the Mac or the phone or the computer are leveraged in a, in a way spreadsheets or certain tools or applications are other forms of leverage. So it begs the question of like, what's the next bicycle? I think in the next decade, we're starting to see quite a few trends. I mean, Clearbank being one of them is, and we're seeing actually a lot of companies in this FinTech space is, are there ways to add kind of financial leverage to businesses that traditionally didn't exist? Help them stretch a dollar further or get more use out of a dollar. But kind of beyond that, I think if you're saying probably 77 years old, I think the question in my mind is, imagine if we could all be working on the highest leverage activities think to our days and everything that's not truly a decision that requires a human, can we automate? Ranging from anything like email answering, for example, scheduling activities, those are the basic ones. But then even as complex things like copywriting or writing code, the decision we need to make in terms of copywriting or writing, like let's say an ad, is probably just selecting which ad we believe is the best. And a lot of the typical scripts could actually probably be generated by NLP, for example. So that that's kind of an area that I, I hope to explore more in. Um, but aside from the what, I think what I really care about is who I'm also spending that time with. 50 years is a long time. So as long as I'm working on interesting projects with people I enjoy hanging out with, I think it'll be a fun 50 years.
1: Very nice. Yeah, that what is kind of the next bicycle question is, I think, a great one. It's one that I'm certainly going to need to spend some time thinking on. But uh, I guess just to what you spoke about in terms of decision fatigue and then thinking through how can we kind of prune away the different parts of our day that are not quite as high leverage as the things we actually want to be working on. I guess I saw like a recent interview uh, between Michael Lewis and then Barack Obama. And Barack Obama was basically talking about if you want to be a successful president, his thinking was that you need to eliminate as many meaningless decisions, pieces of minutiae in your life as you possibly can. So he gave the simple example of like, he's only going to wear a blue or gray suit. Um, he's going to eat most of the same things each day because this is the leader of the free world. You know, he needs to make all these important decisions. He can't be worrying about BS, like what kind of a suit he's wearing. So I definitely agree with you there. I think it's so, so important for us to take a look at what are the high leverage things we can accomplish in our days and what's kind of the stuff we want to push to the side and automate there.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Zuckerberg, how he wears that kind of the same uh, same t-shirt every day.
1: Absolutely. Definitely funny to see kind of the the difference between how the public views those two people.
0: But definitely similar in yeah. the sense they, uh, they wear <laughs> these things. Uh, so Charlie, lastly, where can, our, uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, so I don't really post much on, on Twitter. I always love chatting with kind of whether it be young entrepreneurs. If someone starting out their company, love to hear from them at, at ClearBank. I think you just go to clearbank.com and, and reach out that way. Oh, otherwise, always love chatting with entrepreneurs and people kind of have passion in this area. They can always reach me at charlie
1: Great. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the
0: show. My pleasure. Thanks, Ashley. This was a lot of fun.
1: This has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.carb.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.